We're going to get started now. Uh, I am Aman Bathija, transportation reporter for the Texas Tribune. On behalf of the Tribune, welcome to the fourth annual Texas Tribune Festival. And our panel is High Speed Rail Really Happening. Uh, this panel will last 60 minutes, and I'll try and carve out about 15 to 20 minutes for audience Q&A. Uh, for those who want to tweet, the hashtag is TribuneFest. There's also a track-specific hashtag you can see up there, TTFTranspo. Uh, we have got a really great group of panelists here to talk about whether Texas is indeed poised to become a national icon and uh, launch a high-speed rail system in Texas. Uh, to my immediate left is Mark Williams. Uh, he's director of planning within the Texas Department of Transportation's Planning and Projects Office, where he is responsible for directing statewide multimodal planning and environmental programs, including public transit and rail projects. He has served in leadership positions with two state departments of transportation and has worked with national private sector transportation uh, engineering organizations. To his left is Bill Meadows, uh, chairman of the Commission for High-Speed Rail in the Dallas-Fort Worth region, which was just created this past January by TxDOT. He also serves on the board of directors of the Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport and Move Texas Forward, a group focused on addressing the state's mobility challenges. Next, we have Clay Jenkins, who is the Dallas County Judge, a position he has held since 2011. He also sits on the North Central Texas Council of Government's Regional Transportation Council. He is president of the Jenkins & Jenkins Law Practice and is the co-owner of Brown Dental Health Services. And on the end over there is Robert Eccles, who is president of Texas Central High-Speed Railway, a private enterprise seeking to build a high-speed rail system linking Dallas to Houston. He has previously served as the Harris County Judge, chairman of the Harris County Toll Road Authority, chairman of the Houston Galveston Area Council's Transportation Policy Council, and he has he served for more than a decade in the Texas House. Uh, thank you all for being here. Uh, and I'm going to target my questions at certain panelists, but I want this to be a conversation. Others can feel free to jump in. Uh, one more thing. Representative uh, Jonathan Stickland was supposed to be here, but he had to cancel. I think he has um, a sick kid. Uh, and uh, because of that, he was going to be our rail critic. So I may actually have oh. you guys uh, <laughs> just imagine what well, he would have said. I, well, <laughs> I can... I'm, I'm a supporter of rail, but I can play the part. <laughs> yes. also. Secure the border. Liberty. Freedom. <laughs> You're hired. So just let me know. I'll do help. Um, I wanted to start on the end uh, with Robert. Uh, you are uh, leading this project to build a bullet, tra a bullet train from Houston to Dallas. Uh, and it seems like with the start of this project and uh, your promotion of it, Texas is talking more seriously about high-speed rail than I have in probably 20 years. So I hope you could talk a little bit about where the project is now. Sure, and, and to understand where we are today, you really have to understand how we got to where we are today, Amon. And uh, it has you know, been decades that Texas has talked about high-speed rail. Uh, there is essentially no true high-speed rail <clears throat> in the United States, uh, the, the closest being the Northeast Corridor. And, and it hasn't been built for a number of reasons, but it largely deals with finances and how to pay for it. Uh, if you'll recall, back in the 90s, there was a plan to link uh, Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, and San Antonio in a, a Texas triangle and ultimately what became affectionately called the Texas wishbone, and it was just because they wished they could have built it. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, but it was a state-sponsored project and generated a lot of opposition from people who didn't want the taxpayers subsidizing uh, the, the rail system, high-speed rail. Uh, there was uh, fighting with the airline, a lot of competition for the, the, the project, particularly because of the state funding. So it ultimately collapsed uh, because it was unable to be financed in, in opposition to the project, and it was a very top-down project. Uh, 
we came to it with a little different perspective. Um, I, I started out as county judge working with my colleagues in the Metroplex, uh, uh, Judge Jenkins' predecessor in office, back a couple of times, on how we could work more closely together. And among the things we looked at as urban issues was transportation. You know, transportation, health care, various other urban kind of issues, but, but transportation jumped out. And linking these two major economic drivers for Texas, as well as the, the Metroplex, uh, Dallas, Fort Worth, and Austin, and San Antonio, uh, we, we put together an urban county group to, to push the initiative of these kinds of projects. Uh, it is much easier to get funding for transportation and traffic relief within a county than it is intercity. And so we've never really looked at this as a state-sponsored project, but how do we encourage private investment? Flash forward today, um, we talked to the Japanese for this project before we worked with the French, the Germans, the Spanish, the Italians, the, the Chinese. Everyone came in and, and had a vision for a state-sponsored project that they could sell to, much as you're seeing in other parts of the country. But uh, there was a study done by our system integrator for 97 quarters in the United States. Uh, and it is probably fortunate that we hadn't built it before because uh, of those 97 quarters, uh, there's more money in the Northeast Corridor or in California, but they're problematic because of legacy carriers and, and regulatory issues and terrain and costs. The most innately financeable <clears throat> number one corridor in America, North America, was Houston to Dallas Fort Worth. It is a corridor that can stand alone. You have two large metropolitan areas, uh, Clay, of course, coming out of the Metroplex, close to 7 million people today in the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Uh, Houston is at about 6.7 million people in that region now. So they're two big Metroplex regions, uh, relatively rural and flat in between. And fundamentally, as a private company, we're able to build with the discipline of the market imposed upon us and not get distracted with some of the, the political debate about where we go and control the cost to a point that we can get a, a project that the banks will finance, that we can make a, we can pay the debt, we can pay maintenance and operations, and give a return to our investors that's not attractive to, to attract investors to the project, and actually get one built. And so fundamentally what's different in this project is it is private. We're not looking for grants or operating subsidies. Uh, we are partnering to the extent we can with existing right-of-way providers. We're trying to avoid the challenges in the past where people have gone to uh, you know, big greenfield developments. We're running adjacent to or existing to highways, high lines, uh, and railroads, and, and partnering and trying to, to have a minimal impact on the communities. And uh, we believe with that disciplined private market approach, with mitigation of right-of-way issues along the route, we'll have to take some new right-of-way, but largely be you know, a minimal impact, that we can complete a project that will be successful, that will make money, and that will We'll show folks what high-speed rail really can be. It's a 200, we got a picture here on the wall, it's a 205 mile an hour, fifth generation Shinkansen system. It's gone 50 years now in Japan with zero loss of life accidents. It is the safest train in the world and arguably the most efficient with less than a one minute delay. So we think that this message and this really cool technology, this fun, fun technology, can transform Texas and do it in a Texas way, different than they've done in other parts of the country. You said no operating subsidies. Are you expecting any public support from the state or the federal government to, to get the project built? No, 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 no grants, mm -hmm. build it, or operating. So we're, we're like any other business. We're going to want tax increment financing. We're, we will like incremental monies that we might generate, but we don't want to be speeded, treated differently than any other business. Toyota's mm -hmm. building a plant in Texas or something. Okay. Uh, Bill and Clay, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about this kind of second leg of the project that has gotten some attention over the past year. As soon as 
there was uh, a lot of interest in this Houston to Dallas line, Dallas-Fort Worth leaders said, hey, we want it to go to Fort Worth too. And so now you guys are both kind of looking into the idea of expanding it if it gets built from Dallas to Fort Worth. Can you talk about where that is going now? Go ahead, Bill. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll certainly start. I, I think what's important to just acknowledge here is we're really talking about a, a, a truly exciting opportunity for Texas's future. And, and what is also important is the state, through the Texas Transportation Commission, uh, recognizes that opportunity mm-hmm. and has, and that manifests in, in, in this fashion. Uh, this, the Transportation Commission created this high-speed rail commission that's focused on connectivity between Dallas and Fort Worth, which effectively is, a, is, a, is an extraordinary leveraging opportunity. And that's really what it is over what Texas Central Rail has been talking about. So essentially what then you would be talking about are two separate capital structures but basically, from, a, from a, a, a Texan's perspective, someone that might get on a train in downtown Fort Worth, you would end up in downtown Houston with a stop in maybe Arlington, certainly central Dallas, and then on to Houston in, in a matter of minutes, not, not the hours that it was going to take to drive today, nor let's think about and project into the future the sort of transportation challenges that we're going to, that we're going to face in this state. Let's be honest. You know, when you, you just had a transportation funding discussion, and we begin to recognize, given all the demographic data that everybody in this room sees and we all talk about, you know, Texas is going to be a very different place in 10 years and in 20 years and in 30 years. And when you really begin to think about connectivity and the, the absolute imperative of being able to connect in a very effective and efficient way the urban centers of this state, you know, high-speed rail is most likely going to be, you know, one particular piece of the overall transportation mosaic. Transportation Commission, Texas Transportation Commission created this high-speed rail commission, which is seven seven-member commission uh, with representatives from across the metroplex. And, Judge, can you talk sure. a little bit about uh, what you hope to see throughout this? Well, I think North Texas over the last three or four years um, has become a much more uh, stronger working relationship, knitted together, uh, sort of a of a working. Um, between the cities and the counties. Uh, so we support uh, Tarrant County and the West, um, you know, goal of, of uh, trying to get a, a station there. Um, it's, it, it, we don't think a lot of our, our citizens will use that as a commuter opportunity to go to Tarrant County because the, even though it's a less than 20 minute run there from their house, it's probably about a 40-minute run there on the, on the roads, and it's about an hour run on the rail that they use now. But it does provide that leveraging opportunity to better uh, knit together what amounts to 13.6 uh, million people. And I think what they're looking at is the same thing we're looking at. Um, if you put high-speed rail in downtown Dallas, uh, the economic benefit for a concentric circle around that is tremendous. We, we have right now um, $200 a square foot land in Uptown. Uh, we just, developers aren't able to really buy and build any more land there. That would be about a half a mile from where this uh, uh, rail line would terminate in, in Dallas or where the Dallas stop would be. Uh, and we're seeing people building um, all around where this would be uh, as, as the downtown area really blossoms uh, with a lot of economic growth. And we need that because we need to strengthen our tax base in our uh, center city. 
we think this uh, would be a tremendous, tremendous economic opportunity. Mark, I was hoping you could talk about the state's role in high-speed rail, which sure. is a little complicated. Um, there's, along with this Houston and Dallas project, there's some studies going on that really cover, I think, high-speed rail from Oklahoma City to Mexico. Sure. Uh, can you talk about where they are and kind of are any of these likely to move forward? Well, let me, let me kind of start off with, Amon, you know, your, your question about what's the state, state's role. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that's a, an important one to define, and, and it sort of, you know, sets our approach to how we address our studies and how we work with uh, uh, groups that want to see high-speed rail develop in the state mm-hmm. of Texas. Uh, clearly, it's a major transportation project for, for our state. And as the Department of Transportation, we have a role in helping that project to, to come to fruition. Uh, Judge Eccles provided a pretty good perspective uh, on the history mm-hmm. of, of high-speed rail here in Texas and what's gotten us to this point. And it's, it's because it is a, uh, a, a, an opportunity that is now being uh, driven by uh, private investment interest mm-hmm. uh, who see it as, as, as something that, that has the, the opportunity to be profitable <laughs> and be successful uh, as a private initiative. And both uh, Judge Jenkins and, and uh, uh, Bill Meadows uh, talked a little bit about the, the public interest and the public support, the opportunities from an economic development standpoint in, in the city of Dallas. Uh, and so we see our role with TxDOT as really being uh, a, a facilitator and an enabler of this process and to work on behalf of the state as the lead Department of Transportation for the state of Texas to help these processes be as successful as, as, as possible. And so it's to work in partnership with uh, the Texas Central Railway and the Judge Eccles' group to work as a liaison with them, with the Federal mm-hmm. Railroad Administration. Uh, and then as, as uh, uh, Bill Meadows described, our, our commission's role in establishing the High-Speed Rail Commission there in the Dallas-Fort Worth area mm-hmm. to kind of bring together uh, the local leaders in that area to kind of help provide input and guidance and, and shape uh, that that discussion and that project for that region. At the same time, there's a number of other projects that are being looked at by the state of Texas. And, and uh, uh, the corridor from Houston to, to, to Dallas-Fort Worth was, was identified by uh, by our agency and had been identified for a number of years, probably the corridor that would have the best opportunity for success for improved passenger rail service or even high-speed rail service. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Judge Eccles' group and Texas Central Railway recognized that. At the same time, we continue to look at opportunities for high-speed rail as a system. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we develop that system and see opportunities for particular legs to advance, that also increases our ability to leverage that project to develop other legs of the system. And we're working right now with, uh, as, as you noted, uh, with the Oklahoma Department of Transportation in studying a corridor along the I-35 corridor from Oklahoma City through the Metroplex all the way down to South Texas. Uh, that project right now is in a, what we call a project-level environmental assessment, sort of looking at, at the feasibility of the corridor in general and the level of service, the type of service uh, for, for rail operations there, uh, and, and going to conclude by uh, the end of this year, early next year, with a recommendation on, on a uh, set of priorities and, and what service level would look uh, optimally at, at being able to be successful within that, that corridor. As we've been going through that process, uh, you mentioned and, and noted that uh, uh, we've, it has gained some interest 
from, uh, from Mexico. Uh, in particular, the state of Nuevo Leon and, and uh, Monterrey have approached uh, the state of Texas uh, and through Congressman Cuellar's office about uh, their interest in, in the outcome of that study and, and the prospects of their being able to link a system to it. And so, you know, we see as, as the state's role in this is, is to continue the planning process, continue the project development process through the environmental stage to enable uh, private investment and, and, and local supporters to help carry those, for, those projects forward to success. Do any of those uh, possibilities, Oklahoma through the Metroplex and South Texas and Mexico, are, are, is, has funding been discussed or identified in any way for any of those? No, um, we, we still look at this as, as, as I mentioned, a, uh, an opportunity that would be uh, driven by private investment. Okay. And, and we feel like that the, the best opportunity to uh, have that occur successfully is for the state to uh, advance those projects through some of the initial planning stages, even to advance them through uh, the environmental stage uh, as possible so that uh, potential uh, investors and developers that would be interested in that would, would be able to step in and, and with a, a project that has at least been able to clear some of the initial hurdles from an environmental or a regulatory standpoint, uh, and, and that would improve their opportunity for success. All right. Well, Robert, uh, do, do you think your investors would be interested in expanding beyond Dallas and Houston if, if that project <laughs> happens? Yeah, I would hope so. The, the fundamentally, uh, the Texas model, and what you're hearing here is a partnership, mm-hmm. yeah. working together. We, we land in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. We're working closely with the North Central Texas COG, and TxDOT, the judge, the mayors, to, to make sure that we're part of the transportation solution and part of the plan for the long term. We're not just landing in downtown Dallas with this project. We are designing our project to meet up with Michael Morrison, the, the, the COGS plan for high-speed rail for the Metroplex, in which Bill Meadows chairs that commission now. Who's becoming to Houston, likewise, we're not trying to terminate in some building. We're looking where you could go. When the study, the same group that did, it, did, did our study that, that looked at this project, looked at the I-35 corridor, and it was one of the top five. There's economics there. And my hope is, is that as we move forward with this project, and the environmental process is starting probably in October, the formal scoping meetings at the end of October, 1st of November, uh, that, uh, that other people will look at this project and see that partnership and the opportunity, and that our system is one that even if it's not this train mm-hmm. going from Houston to Austin or from Dallas down through the 35 quarter, that we have broken ground on the technology in the United States and we can have a connectivity within the system, if not interoperability, but a connectivity so that if someone has the cash and is willing to come in and build that train down to Waco and, and uh, you know, Colleen Temple and then to Austin, that they can do it and know that they can connect through the Metroplex, even if it's a cross-platform transfer, to another high-speed system and, and make their transportation experience easy. And so that's the, the coordination you're seeing in this project. And we're working with the state, we're working with the local governments, we're working with the transit agencies to be part of a connected transportation system, that mosaic that Bill talked about of the transportation system. But there is not a solution to the transportation challenges of Texas, but this is a part of the solution to the transportation. You just mentioned the public scoping meetings, and I want to focus on this for a minute. Uh, the, the, these means are a part of the federal review that's happening right now. They, it allows the public to, along from between Houston and Dallas, to, to come to meetings and sure. 
and talk and get questions answered, which that hasn't happened yet. Uh, you, until now, it's all been very much discussed between transportation leaders and business leaders. Um, can you talk a little bit about how those meetings are going to work? Yeah, we are we're a private company and haven't been trying to build the political support for this project because we're not asking for the uh, voters to pay for pay for the project. But we have been visiting with people affected along the route, the mm -hmm. county judges, the mayors, the Farm Bureau. Uh, we'll meet next week with the cattle raisers, uh, the various you know, uh, the political constituencies along the route uh, to explain what we're proposing. Uh, what our impact will be, trying to make this a, a grassroots, kind of ground-up kind of communication process, not a, here's what we're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, for the last three years, we've been doing the preliminary environmental, the flora and fauna, the, the Houston toad, the Navasota ladies' tresses, the kind of environmental work you have to look at over a longer term. The public process, and again, TxDOT has been a good partner, the Federal Railroad Administration as well has been a good partner in the regulatory side. Again, both regulate this project at high-speed rail, and the rail in Texas generally. Uh, and both are co-leads on the environmental uh, process. Uh, the, the EIS is one that we don't run. We, we pay for it, but TxDOT and the Federal Railroad Administration are co-leads on that. But we expect that the scoping meetings, that there will be probably six scoping meetings, you know, Houston, Dallas, Fort Worth area, and then, again, uh, four others along the route in between, and I'm not really sure where those will be yet. We have not been told. I think Monday we, we find out officially when they start. We're expecting it to be again, late October, early November, that those six meetings will start the process mm -hmm. uh, to, to talk about alternative routes and the impact on the communities and let people actually see a line on the map uh, and, and, uh, and what our vision is and what we need to do to accommodate the needs of the smaller towns in between. Uh, what we are finding in the discussions with smaller towns is, unlike other parts of the country, what their understanding is that if the train doesn't come here, uh, there'll never be a stop. They used to, you know, in parts of the country, they said, we don't want this coming through our community because you're not stopping there. Well, Texas, what people are understanding is that in Japan, they started the train in Tokyo and went to Nagoya, and it didn't stop. But today it goes Tokyo, Shin, uh, Shinagawa, Shin-Yokohama, Shin-Fuji. There's eight stations probably between Tokyo and Nagoya. And not every train stops at every station. There's express trains. It's, it's 90 minutes or less between Houston and Dallas. But there'll be an opportunity, maybe in 20 years, to build a station somewhere in between. We'll, we'll have one planned now that will serve uh, generally, Bryan College Station area, that center part of the track. But, but that's because there's economics and I can get enough ridership to pay for a station. Mm -hmm. uh, but what, what we're finding in most of the small towns is they're saying, you know, we want this train to come through here. We understand you're grade separated, you're quiet, you're electric, there's no horns, you're not going to run over our kids because they're putting pennies on the track. You know, it, we're, we're secure. You're, you can get your tractors underneath our, our track. We understand that we can, the impact you're going to have on our community. And so we're getting a pretty good response from folks out there. So, so we're not expecting hopefully, the kind of, of controversy about this mm -hmm. train because people are understand what we're building so far along the route. Well, this was when I was going to talk to Representative Stickland about his concerns about the project. Yeah, and most people... What they, what Secure the border. <laughs> <laughs> most people... Most of the opposition comes people that say they don't believe you can really be done privately. They say, you're just going to get this started and come back and then look for state money. And the fact is, I mean, I'm still a Republican judge, and... We've got investors, and we expect that yeah. if we don't build it, they lose their money. Or if they build it and it doesn't make money, you know, we understand that. That's, that's what's fun about Texas is that this is Texas. It's a pro-business kind of state. They understand putting capital at risk and letting us go out there and, and, and try to make this a reality. And if we can prove it up and it works between Houston and Dallas, either us or someone else will figure out a way to connect it to Austin and San Antonio and do the build out the project over the long term. 
that, that Mark's talking about from, mm -hmm. from the, the long-term planning and attract other investors as well. Well, Bill and Clay, I, there, there is a contingent, particularly in North Texas, of kind of Tea Party politicians and a really active community. Uh, and I've, I've covered those meetings for years, and I've heard repeatedly people just dismiss and criticize high-speed rail mm -hmm. as boondoggles and uh, you know, taking money away from road construction or taking resources, even if it's all private money, it's still taking kind of, it might be taking resources of, you know, of other sorts away from road construction, which is what Texans want, and just, just kind of criticism of the idea that Texans would ever embrace high-speed rail. And I was wondering if you, as you guys have been kind of involved in this project uh, in an ancillary way, uh, have you been hearing that from area politicians and activists and stuff? Um. Actually, uh, what I hear more from, from Tea Party constituents, because mm -hmm. um, serving a county with two and a half million people, I hear from everybody. Uh, yesterday, I heard from the Rockwall Tea Party about a toll road uh, in Rockwall. Mm -hmm. well, I don't know why they want to call me about it. But, um, <laughs> uh, but God bless me. You know? but, just um, secure the border. They're, they're, <laughs> you know, they're concerned about, uh, on the transportation front, they're concerned about... Um, uh, toll roads right now more so than they seem to be concerned about uh, rail. I haven't heard uh, from a lot of conservative constituents um, about that. And because I, I have kind of a partnership on some issues with the faith community, and some of those are like, you know, Southern Baptists who tend to be Republicans, I usually do hear from people uh, if they have uh, concerns. And so I haven't heard those concerns about rail. And as the fake Jonathan Strickland, I probably should say something bad about President Obama right now. <laughs> this whole rail thing is a plan by President Obama to take away your freedom, <laughs> liberty. Because <laughs> yeah. I think I covered it, secure the border and attack Obama. I got it. Well, Jonathan, well, I, hope your, I hope your child gets better. I got you covered, buddy. <laughs> What, what, what is exciting about this project and touching on that is that we have had support from both the yeah. Federal Railroad Administration and TxDOT. They're working closely together. They understand the project. We've avoided those kind of political challenges. Uh, that, 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 and, and again, I, mean, I don't like to think I was probably Tea Party before there was one. And, you know, there were only 35 Republicans when I got elected to the House here in, in Austin. But, because we're private, it neutralizes a lot of that criticism mm -hmm. that comes out. And, and again, uh, if we were competing for road dollars, then I would, you know, there would be some, some merit to that argument. And, mm -hmm. and again, it's the, the skepticism that we can't build a project that generates some of that opposition. Mm -hmm. But the fact is, if we don't raise the money, it's not going to get built. We understand there is no money in Texas for high-speed rail. The, the state is not inclined to appropriate those funds. And... We're not asking for it. Uh, we think that this can be a standalone project. And in fact, if we get the government money, we expect it will take longer and cost more. My experience in the county government was building federally sponsored flood control projects and, mm -hmm. and other federally funded projects. It took twice as long, it cost twice as much. So we're, we're, we're excited about having something. We think we can get the environmental process finished in about 18 months, that we can start construction and have this train operational by 2021. Yeah. And we couldn't do that if we were going through TxDOT's procurement process. It just you cannot work that fast. And so we don't want uh, the federal grants because we, we think that that would, would again, bankrupt the project and, and make it impossible to build. Well, and 
so 25 years ago, a, pr a private French firm uh, mm -hmm. tried to build a high-speed rail between Houston and Dallas. Uh, and when they had those public scoping meetings, one of the big issues that came up was eminent domain, where, where the track is going and um, you know, what private land is being taken. I was hoping you can talk about it, and then Mark could also talk about kind of how that would work in this process, sure. especially with a private company going through Houston and Dallas. Sure. Well, in, the, in the, that original plan, it was a public company. It was the state of Texas mm -hmm. taking their land. Uh, we tried to explain to people as we go through that, that we're, we're doing two things to minimize that impact. Mm -hmm. One is we're trying to go, or we are, you know, adjacent to or within existing highways, high lines, and railroads. So we think we can get as much as 70% of the project where if, if a farmer's got a railroad running behind his house, he may have a 50-foot closer fence, much better fence than he had behind his farm before with this railroad. So it's not, uh, it's not going to have the kind of impact because it's already next to existing infrastructure. Where we have to be greenfield, and there will be places where we will have to straighten the track out or we'll have to straighten out, the, you know, make a turn and, and take out property, uh, we will be a little different than the public in going through. First, we don't take your land. We get an easement. So that's a, a common concern of people as well. You know, you're taking my land. You're getting my oil and gas minerals and, you know, the, the challenges that come with that. So it's an education process to explain that, no, we don't get any of that. We get an easement, and if we're not running a train, that easement goes away. Uh, second, we're elevated, or we understand the need to get the culverts. You, you get back and forth. We'll accommodate your needs to get back and forth. The farmers we talk to... In the previous project, we're told it was going to be a 10-mile wide, great, they called it the Great Wall of China, mm -hmm. uh, dividing their farms. We understand that problem. We, we, we want to provide the access, and that's part of the environmental scoping meetings. We explain that mm -hmm. and, and listen to their concerns and where we need to provide that access back and forth. Uh, we are um, also, you know, explain the, the acquisition process for, for the land, and that being a private company, we have more flexibility to deal with people than perhaps the state does when they take property. And can, can be more accommodating of either the relocation needs, like, you know, we can pay for your house today, and you can still live there for five years until we need it, and when you leave, you can take the brakes, the air conditioner, and everything with you. Uh, so there are things that we can do to make it a, an easier process for folks. Um, and, and, again, we're no different than a freight rail line coming through and doing this, or a power line, or a pipeline, or somebody else. So um, that is probably the most controversial part of the project, but we, we are taking steps to minimize that impact and to try to show that there is a, a right way to do this that can, can have the, the minimal impact on the community and treat people uh, fairly mm -hmm. and that, that they can leave with a good experience. Mark, could you talk about, you know, TxDOT has an extensive history in eminent domain when they're building highways and all these other public projects. Would, would, would you guys be involved with this project in any way in that regard? Well, I think Judge Eccles talked about it uh, and, uh, appropriately in that, you know, things that, that uh, Texas Central Railway uh, Corporation are doing right now recognizes the, the sensitivities associated with right-of-way. And, mm -hmm. and uh, TxDOT does as well, too. And I think every time we undertake a transportation project these days, we do everything that we can to try to utilize existing right-of-way to, to the maximum degree possible. And uh, that's the same approach that uh, uh, the TCR is, is, is looking at uh, for their connection from uh, Houston to Dallas, mm -hmm. and we have to go through the environmental process to to guide that and to get public information that's going to come, public input that's going to come from the scoping study efforts that are underway to gauge public sentiment mm -hmm. uh, about uh, how the project needs to be built, how we need to address right-of-way concerns, accessibility concerns, 
uh, and we really have to kind of let that process guide us uh, as we go through the whole project development, which will lead into uh, any necessary right-of-way acquisition or easements that need to uh, uh, take place. That's going to continue to be driven largely by uh, the Texas Central Railway. Uh, and then uh, similarly, we are going through uh, the environmental scoping effort uh, in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, in the Metroplex, and, and that process is tracking uh, in a coordinated manner with, with what uh, is going on right now from Houston to Dallas. And again, we're looking at, at uh, using uh, existing uh, right-of-way wherever possible. And then working through the environmental process and working with local officials, that's part of the, the importance of having this high-speed rail commission in the Dallas-Fort Worth area because we, we envision working with local communities to address you know, any necessary right-of-way needs or easements uh, that may be uh, part of the, 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 the project from Dallas to Fort Worth. But fundamentally, too, uh, this project is very different than it is. We're, we're at our widest point at County Road. We're not an interstate coming through their neighborhood, so it's much mm -hmm. less of an impact. So even if we're building at grade with embankments with buffer zone, we're only 100 feet wide. Mm -hmm. And if we have to, we can squeeze into 50 feet of right away and be elevated through the area. So it's, it's, it's not the kind of impact that a interstate would have coming through the local communities. And I think when we go out and talk to people about that, they start to, to visualize that it's a, a train that is elevated, it's quiet, it's safe, and uh, it's narrow, uh, it's minimal impact, that, that we get much less pushback than you got in the past from these you know, big infrastructure projects. Bill, could you talk a little bit about where you, as you're looking at the Dallas to Fort Worth segment as a possibility, where, where that might go? Sure. Um, I'm on, what, I'd start with just saying what I, what I think it's important to, to leave everyone with here today is the fact that the, 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 the broad and deep scope of this vision. When you really think about it, I mean, conceptually, let's start. Each of these component parts, you've heard the term coordinated used time and time again. The DFW, uh, Dallas-Fort Worth Connection, uh, environmental process is just about to begin. I mean, it is a coordinated process. There, at the same time, the state is looking at the other quarters we've talked about, but we're all communicating. The North Texas Council of Governments, Michael Morris, that's, that staff working closely with TxDOT in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, you know, working with the consultant that is brought on board. The environmental process has started, and, and, and answered directly to your question, there are several very real and obvious possibilities in terms of what quarters would be most likely uh, to be the quarters chosen. The Interstate 30 quarter connecting mm -hmm. downtown Fort Worth, downtown Dallas, uh, perhaps Trinity Railway Express. Those two jump into my mind and probably are going to be at the top of the list in terms of what would be explored. But again, you know, those, that, that process has been started. It is important, though, really to know that, that this concept statewide, and I'm talking about high-speed rail just conceptually, you know, you're beginning to see shape and form. Mm -hmm. It's beginning to come together, and this environmental process will flesh out a lot of details, and a lot of the questions that people do have, I think, will be answered in this process, as is appropriate. Mm -hmm. uh, Judge Jenkins, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about DART. Uh, Dallas has the, correct me if I'm wrong, the largest light rail system in the country, which when I mention that to people, they're always stunned, <laughs> yeah. because Dallas is not what you think of. You, you don't think of public transit as a really big way of getting around in Dallas, um, and I'm wondering if you feel that this project and the Dallas-Fort Dallas Worth connection might kind of really be a boon to DART as well. Well, I think so. And I, I think 
some dark numbers illustrate why the West is anxious to get uh, some stops there. We have 62 dart rail stations, and on average, property values uh, have increased 13.2% within a quarter mile radius of each of those stops, some a lot more. Like the nearest one to me is called Mockingbird Station, uh, and that has, you know, uh, probably increased a thousand percent since we got a <laughs> dart um, stop there. But an average of 13.2%. We just opened the DFW airport to DART uh, last month. We had the ceremony. And uh, we see that in uh, cities that have light rail connecting their airport to their downtown, downtown hotel rooms command an extra 11%. So, and that's light rail. And so when we're talking about high-speed rail, um, I think it, you'll see even greater impact at those uh, terminus points. And then that could be something that could really help uh, ex expedite uh, Tarrant County particularly's desire to uh, expand light rail. Mm -hmm. um, because it, um, cut, you could almost have like a Union Station there and expand out of that to uh, many points. So, um, but it's, yeah, it's definitely a boon for us and uh, I think that's probably one of the reasons why uh, it's, it's, you know, I have to ask the judge, but I think it's one of the, one of the things that Dallas has going for it um, and the region has going for it because now Denton County has light rail and Tarrant County has light rail. Is we do have this light rail where you can uh, get off one train, get on another and, and get to a suburb or, or a neighborhood. I can go from my house um, uh, I, I generally don't, but I, I, I can go from my house to my to my <laughs> office, and I've got a light rail. Uh, when you, I have to travel all day long, you know, mm -hmm. otherwise I'd probably be a little greener. But uh, I've got a light rail um, a stop of, of probably 150 feet from the door of my office. Mm -hmm. so. It was interesting while well, I was talking about the, the tra integrating with the transportation system. We very much are a part of a system, mm -hmm. and we will in the Metroplex, work with North Central Texas COG, DART, uh, the cities on how we connect into the transportation system, be it light rail or the freeways or the highways. Mm -hmm. uh, around the world, you talk to folks that say, you know, it won't work there because you don't have the collector-distributor system like we have in Paris or London or, or Japan. And we say, well, you're right. We don't have a collector-distributor system like yours. We do have a collector-distributor system. It's called a freeway. <laughs> and so for us, we need to be today close to the freeways, but we understand for the long-term planning that we need to be partnered with DART, with the TRE, with Houston Metro, that there'll be shuttles into the Bryan College Station area from our station. And so we're working very closely with the COGS in the Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, North Central Texas, or North Texas COG, the Brazos Valley COG that works serves the Bryan College Station area, HGAC, transit agencies on all ends of the project, or all locations for the project, and how we we coordinate and, and, uh, and, and connect into the transportation system. And so that's going to be, you're going to see that continuing to grow um, on both ends. And, and I expect you'll see that both DART and Houston Metro will grow, grow around us as we wind up lighting in downtown Dallas and in central Houston. Well, and that's one of the criticisms <coughs> or skepticism you hear of high-speed rail in Texas is that the cities are, and the state is just too spread out. And that people, you know, once you get off the rail, how are you going to, where are you going to go? Uh, and so you're saying, and I wanted to know if you, any of you have agree or disagree on this, that you expect a more robust transportation system 
to kind of or for, for us, emerge. From a, marketing, from a marketing perspective for us, early on it's cars. And if you look at Love Field or DFW Airport, most people arrive by car or shuttle bus, they take a taxi, mm -hmm. they get a rent car. The difference is when you get a rent car at our station, you don't have to get on a shuttle to go somewhere because there's no runways to get away from. The rent car can be right there. Mm -hmm. It'll be less than a minute from the time you get off the train to get in your car. We anticipate a car to go or zip car kind of technology. I'm not going to put, you know, I'm not going to put clay in a smart car to drive to leave the deal. The deal. As much as we might like smart cars and you see them driving around Austin, I personally, and I've, I've driven those little cars, they're fun, but I prefer a little bit bigger car. <laughs> but that doesn't mean my credit card still can't be my key and I just get in it and go. And we, we expect we will have that kind of exceptional customer experience, mm -hmm. we're, we're private. We want a great customer experience. We have people to come in and see our train and say, I, I love this, it's a cool train, it's comfortable, I can get on my computer, there's no TSA kind of security, I can you know, have a drink on the way, uh, I can get up and walk around, I get there, I get off, I get out, get into the car in two minutes, I'm on, the, the, I'm on I-30 going to you know, wherever I need to go in Dallas. And, or I can get on, the, get on the metro train, or I can get on the TRE, or I can get in a, a car, or a cab, or an Uber car. Uh, it, it will be a way to get between the Metroplex and the, the, the Houston region. But once you get there, the experience doesn't stop. Once you land, you got to be able to get around, and we understand that. Yeah, I think uh, Houston's number three in the country for millennials, and, and population-wise in Dallas, I believe, is number 10. So if you look at what millennials want and what um, – everybody younger than baby boomers and some of the younger baby boomers want. Um, they want more urban connectivity. They're not, there's not as many people interested in commuting for 45 minutes um, so that they can get an extra quarter acre of yard to mow. Uh, people are more interested in being close to amenities and other people and kind of where the action is. Uh, we've seen an explosion of people moving into our downtown and uptown area that give you the the numbers on, and I know Fort Worth has seen the same thing with downtown. And these are people, I've got friends in Fort Worth, I, uh, I've got a private vested interest in Fort Worth succeeding because I own property in downtown. But um, I've got friends from, um, but not that that's going to, you know, at all no. shape what I do. <laughs> but um, Noting it now. I've got friends that have moved from Alito into, into downtown because they want more of that. And I've seen the same thing. We just had uh, someone moved to downtown that's become a friend of ours from Graham, Texas, a lawyer um, and a, and a uh, school administrator who retired and moved to uptown. So you're, you're seeing more of that, and this rail uh, tied with things like Uber that we're seeing more and more people use Uber, um, that's really um, uh, changing the way people connect. Road miles traveled and, and licenses are going down, partly because um, we're, you know, our, our problems with education and poverty and those things are leading to where people can't afford cars, but partly because a lot of millennials are deciding that they don't need a car. Yeah. I think so, what you know, but to your point, I think a lot of what I see is is there is some criticism generated by folks that are using demographic realities of Texas today, trying to use that data to define what the future is going to be. Let's be honest. I mean, all the data we look at suggests that this population is going to continue to grow at a dramatic rate. And that growth, Mark is the, is the professional planner and would comment on this better than I, but the fact is that if we are not looking at ways in the future that we're going to effectively and efficiently serve the transportation needs of this state, we're going to fail the future. 
And you cannot have this conversation based on the reality today. You need to be thinking about what Texas is going to look like in the future, and it's, it's, it's exciting. But it's only going to be exciting in a positive way if we don't begin to address these realities today. And Mark, I, what's we're, your take we're, on we're, that? We're adding 1,000 people a day to the yeah. state of Texas, yeah. and, uh, and they bring their cars with them. And uh, that's, that is a challenge to our transportation system. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, TxDOT has, has, has been uh, uh, stating that we've got about a $5 billion annual deficit to just meet our needs on the highway side. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to be able to meet uh, the transportation, the broader transportation needs, uh, we have to be able to think beyond just the traditional highway-oriented mode and, and to work with the private sector, work with local uh, officials to provide choices and options, mm-hmm. and, and we certainly see that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, that, that high-speed rail is a significant opportunity for the state. It's being driven by the changes in demographics that we've talked about, and we have to be, as, as, as a DOT, uh, enabling and, and, and facilitating that process. Yeah, I'm as the state demographers, we're using their numbers and our analysts. Yeah. We're talking today about, you know, 12 to 14 million people in the Houston and Dallas-Fort Worth region. We're looking by 2035 and having 25 million, the population of Texas in those two regions. And given the financial constraints that Mark's talking about, uh, you can think about how many lanes, lane miles we're taking out of TxDOT's need to expand I-45 between Houston and Dallas. I-45 coming out of Houston, it may be 16 lanes wide when you get to Conroe, but pretty soon about Huntsville gets down to two lanes or four lanes, two lanes each way. And a couple of weeks ago, I'm driving to Dallas, and as I do frequently, there's a wreck. I spent an hour in Freestone County for a very 10-mile segment of road because there's nowhere to go. There's no mm-hmm. alternative, and that's not something that TxDOT can just fix. That's something that's a very expensive process if you're going to go between the two regions. A lot of increased truck traffic coming out of the Port of Houston. Port of Houston is the port for Dallas, Fort Worth, too. And uh, it's just a, a, a huge increase in demand for travel on this, this quarter. And that's one of the issues that helps us with the naysayers, as they understand that this massive growth, and we're private, maybe they don't like it, but what is the, the alternative is for the state to come build it, or the state to have to add two or four lanes of additional capacity on Interstate 45. All right, well, we're going to uh, open it up to questions in just a couple of minutes, so if, any, if anyone with questions can line up at the mics there. But uh, before we do that, uh, one more uh, question. Uh, as I've been covering this project, uh, one thing that's come up quite a bit is uh, the private aspect. And Robert, uh, you know, one thing I've heard from readers as every time I write about this, your project, is who are these private investors? And given that this project is going to be such a massive footprint sure. in the state. Are we ever going to know all of them? Is that ever going to be publicly released? Probably not. Who are the shareholders of Exxon? Who owns Union, or Union Pacific? We, we, know, we know BNSF is owned by, uh, is owned by one, one person, but we, you know, it's, it will be... Uh, I'll, I'll explain the financing a little bit to folks. Is that, and It goes back to my days with Harris County and the Toll Road Authority. When we built the toll road initially, people wouldn't rate, the rating agencies wouldn't rate the bonds because we had free roads, frontage roads along mm-hmm. the toll road. We couldn't get the bonds rated. They said, nobody's going to pay for that toll road if you've got free roads. And so the rating agencies wouldn't rate the bonds, and uh, we couldn't, since we weren't investment-grade bonds, we couldn't sell them at a competitive rate. Mm-hmm. So the county came in and guaranteed those bonds with taxpayer dollars, got the, the AA plus, AAA trading rates for the bonds, and 
we built the roads. No, we never had to levy a tax off that guarantee, but the fact that it was there got the, the roads where they could be financed. And it turned out that the toll roads, the frontage roads actually put more people on the toll roads. People would pay a buck to go around a light, get mm -hmm. on the road and on. So um, this is not unlike that. We are a new project. This is not done around the world, typically privately. The Taiwanese project is private. Japan was built as a state project, but it's now private. They privatized it. So um, our, our biggest single debt provider is the Japan Bank for International Cooperation. They understand this, they're patient, and they see it as a deployment of their technology, but it's also a way for them to, to help build the partnership, the Trans-Pacific Partnership between the, the United States and Japan. So that has come in and allowed us then to attract both corporate, uh, corporate uh, debt providers, typical debt providers, and our investors. And our investors will largely be people like pension funds that are typical infrastructure investors. They're not all there today. Mm -hmm. We've got investors in our uh, pursuit phase of the project, if you will. And we're a Texas company, and I'm one of the investors. <laughs> now, I'm not able, like Warren Buffett, to write a check for billions of dollars, but we do have a group of us that are partners of the project that have put our own money in it, and we've got other people that have, that have put their money in it, and we'll have a Texas investment group. But because we're private, it's very much like, I don't know, who finance the, uh, who buys the bonds for the toll roads in Dallas. It's private people that buy it, and we're the same, same kind of company. So uh, if you're interested in investing in it, we do have an information memorandum. <laughs> and if you become a qualified investor, we'll happy to talk to you. But we're having a lot of interest, and we're, we're confident that we'll have those investors there and the, and the debt service that we can make this work. Okay. Well, first question over here. Hi. Um, this talk mentioned the fact that uh, the proposed rail system should be TSA-free, and this makes a whole lot of sense because, obviously, Japan's gotten off pretty well without something like the TSA. It's a notoriously safe form of transport. Uh, but at the same time, we've seen here in Austin uh, the TSA deploy their Viper teams at our own Amtrak station, as well as you know, various sports games, uh, as well as there's been a proposal to uh, have this rail system go to another country. So I'm wondering, uh, are, are we certain that we won't have to convince Texans to leave their Leathermans at home? We have, so the, to leave their... Leathermans. Pocket knives. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, first off, we don't care if they carry Leathermans on the, on the train. <laughs> you can't. The, the, and around the, around the country, rail systems, whether it's the light rail in Dallas or the Amtrak coming out of, out of uh, you, know, you know, Washington, D.C. or Penn Station in New York, uh, there's a passive security system. You can't hijack one of these trains and turn it into a WMD and crash it into a high-rise or something. The, the train is it's stuck on the tracks. You've got a driver, and then you've got a central control system. So the reason this train hasn't had a wreck for 50 years is if, if, if you ride in the cabin with the driver and he starts going too fast, somebody from central control calls and said, you're ahead of schedule. What's going on? Or he slows down. You're behind schedule. What's happening? Uh, so it is impossible with a check from each side to, to, w, to, to, to crash into something. Um, if, you know, if, if someone did by some chance get into the cabin and try to take over the train, they'd just shut the system down. So it's, it's not been an issue. Um, within the train, it is really no different than somebody coming in here and trying to, to you know, set up a bomb in this room. You'd kill 20 or 30 or 50 people. Um, and it would be a tragedy. But that's, it's, it's just it's globally kind of how railroads work. So uh, we will have uh, passive security systems. Uh, we think we'll have dogs and police and the same kind of things you're seeing here. If there's a credible threat, like TSA dropped into Amtrak in Austin, I'm sure we'll have the, the TSA and the police drop in on us too. But it is a much more passive system, and uh, you don't have the, the magnetometers and the, 
the, the x-ray screening and those kinds of things. Thank you. Uh, next, over here. Uh, thanks so much for being here uh, today, gentlemen. Uh, and I'm excited to hear about this. Uh, it's, I'm not, I don't work on these issues, but I'm definitely interested in the, I just want to ask the, the bare bones question here, which you kind of started getting into. How much is the, like the TCR system? How much is it going to cost? What is the estimated cost? And how much of that do you have lined up now? And yeah, there are we are working on the financial side. I, I can give you general numbers. This is a very expensive project. Mm -hmm. It is in the billions of dollars. It will depend upon how many times we have to cross the Trinity River, what's it cost to get through Beltway 8, where we come through Beltway 8, 610 loop, right away as you come in. We have done four studies culminating in an investment grade market study that indicate that in any scenario that we are likely to face in the construction, we've had preliminary engineering to about a probably a 15% uh, preliminary design kind of engineering to get costs down that uh, indicate that we will be able to give a pretty healthy return to the investors and still pay debt and, and equity costs. Again, I mentioned earlier that the Japan Bank for International Cooperation has come in behind with the initial guarantee of a substantial enough portion of the debt that has attracted a lot of other investors to the project. So I cannot tell you today that we have 100% of the project finance because until we complete the environmental process and the design engineering standards, we won't know. Um, but I can tell you that, that, that there has been millions of dollars spent on investment grade studies and the banks are still with us. I'm hesitant to throw out a dollar amount because there's so much that goes into it between rolling stock, patrol systems, infrastructure, um, and, and, and soft costs that go into that. So it is, again, in the, I hate to get into it without getting into our, our offering documents that securities regulations issues, because there are some things that we fall under, but it is multiples of billions. This is a mega project. This, well, is, this, is, this is billions and billions plus. In the past, I've said, well, let's use for round numbers 10 billion and 2 billion is, is rolling stock. It's more than that. It's, 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 but it could be less depending on where we wind up landing. So, <laughs> um, yeah, All right, so is that clear? It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. If that, if that helps. It will be, the, it'll be, to my mind, the largest private transportation project. There may have been some pipelines or refineries built, but it'll be the largest project of this type privately done, uh, at least in my life. All right, next question. I also have a money question. Um, I'm wondering what the, not only the uh, number of jobs that will be created from the construction and operation of the train, but also like people being able to commute to all the different cities. Like what are your projections on how the employment rate could improve? Sure. There are, uh, again, we, we uh, look at two things. There are you know, 10,000 plus jobs created in the construction phase of the project. It's a huge project. Um, direct and in, 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 largely direct jobs. There will be several thousand permanent employees of the railroad once it is built uh, and the related facilities that go with it. So, it, it, But beyond that, and, and we're hesitant to get into the exponential numbers of jobs because it's just so hard to, to explain to people and, you know, you don't, you know, how do you know? But we know that it'll be transformational for Texas, that if I can get on a, a train in Dallas and get down to Houston and watch baseball in air-conditioned comfort the way it was meant to be watched, 
and get back. I'm going to create some jobs in that, too. Um, and my friends from Dallas, whenever I say that, my friends from Dallas say, yeah, and you can come up here in October and watch the playoffs because you'll never see those in Houston. <laughs> so, um, there's lots of things that we just can't imagine what's going to happen now. People are going to start doing that. that uh, you know, it'll be education opportunities. You can be at University of North Texas and come down to do a, a, a science lab at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, or vice versa. You can come from Rice University and be up at, at UT Southwestern. And there'll be coalitions and, and collaboratives built with work and education and healthcare uh, that we just can't imagine today what's going to happen if it's fast, convenient, uh, and, and affordable to drive back and forth between the, travel back and forth between these two cities with the kind of, you know, in Japan, they have less than one minute delay, less than about 30 second delay with a train. They have a train leaving every four minutes, a 1,300 passenger train leaving every four minutes during peak rush hour from Tokyo Station. Our trains, we're going to run a, about a 400-passenger train every half an hour. But that shows you that we've got 53 minutes of capacity still left to add on and add on and add on. Uh, many, many more people. And I hope we need it more quickly than we think we will. Well, and but our market you know, studies show that we will we'll be able to pay for it on that. Well, but, and just a follow-up question on that. So you are expecting that. I know you're, you've talked about having kind of a first class and yeah, uh, we, separate. But are you expecting that... The, some tickets will be affordable enough that someone could conceivably sure. commute daily. Sure. We, we expect that this will be a train. It, it, our model had about 80% of commercial airfares that we modeled this on. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean it's what the ticket's going to be. It's going to be like an airline where you can do an advanced purchase, off-peak kind of travel that's cheaper. We'll have a first class where we'll give you scotch and shine your shoes if you want while you're going back and forth. Uh, <laughs> It, it, it will be priced, you know, demand-based pricing. We're not going to want to run empty seats back and forth. Um, so it'll be a demand-based pricing, and, and there'll be various classes of service that, that we think uh, uh, will, will be driving revenue for the, for the project. Thank and the, you. And the jobs, it's not just the, it's about 10,000 jobs, yeah. I think, to build this. Yeah. And there's, there's a few hundred jobs. I think our estimate's less than 1,000 jobs to run it. Um, Maybe that's just for Dallas. No, that's that's, um, that, that's that's accurate. But then, um, you know, but you find the hotels and the station right. work and that. Yeah. Legal. Yeah. You think about all the development, or just think about like DFW Airport is the single biggest economic boom for North Texas in the last century, um, and this is a mini airport basically. So. Um. Well, first, I just want to say that I am a big fan of Amtrak between Fort Worth and Austin. I take it several times a year and there's no better way to travel it's less than it would cost me in gas to drive it uh, stress-free I can get on my computer I can relax I can have a drink and everybody's friendly <laughs> on the train and the dart rail we just got a, I live up in Denton County and as Clay was saying we got that up there now and as soon as you open up a line, those trains get full immediately. They ha there are people that commute from Denton that get on the train at 5 in the morning. Um, but what I was wondering, you were saying every half an hour was when yes. you were planning to go? Our, our model is a half hour, uh, half hour service between about 5 in the morning and 11 o'clock at night. And... Um, Comparably speaking, would it be priced similar to what Amtrak is to Austin? We, we are not subsidized like Amtrak. We're not looking for an operating subsidy from the government like Amtrak is. So 
Uh, I don't, I've not ridden that train. You can't actually take a train from Houston to Dallas, but you have to go through San Antonio, and it takes about 15 hours. <laughs> I, I know, uh, which is my biggest yeah. objection, is you can't get from yeah. where you are to where you want to go. So I, I can't speak to that, that run, but I can tell you that we are competing. We understand our competition. It's cars and airlines. And so, um, again, we expect that it will be a demand-priced, um, again, advanced versus off-peak will be cheaper, first class, you know, peak hour when it's full train is going to be more. So uh, there are about 50,000 super commuters that commute at least three days a week between Houston and Dallas-Fort Worth. And uh, sometimes I feel like I'm one of them, <laughs> but, but it's, it's usually not quite that often. But it is, uh, we expect that, that for a lot of those folks that, that this will become, and it's not just the price of gas, you know, it costs, you know, whatever a tank of gas costs, but the IRS gives you 50 plus cents a mile now back and forth because they understand that it's wear and tear on the vehicle and, and it's, as you talk about, the stress of the travel. So. And, and so much better than getting on an airplane where you're like this. And these, these are big seats. These are big trains. They're, they're, they call them wide-bodied. I get taken personal when the Japanese talk about their building. We have wide-bodied seats for the Texans. <laughs> But they are big, comfortable seats. Right, well, thank you. And we, we actually are just about out of time, but this woman's been waiting a long time. So last question. Yeah, I just had a question about location. There's been a lot of talk about the DFW to Houston corridor, mm-hmm. and I'm from Lubbock. So I just wondered if there was a possibility. You know, you mentioned briefly dependent on the success of the, the DFW to Houston path um, about, like, Oklahoma City and Nuevo Leon. But what about, like, Lubbock or Amarillo or El Paso and, like, other more remote parts of the state? It will be, and I will, will take, because people ask me that all the time, it is very much on the private sector side. Uh, it is very much a demand-based travel, and there is enough demand in seven-plus million today in the Houston and the Dallas-Fort Worth regions and, and you know, growing to a much larger population. I believe it will be very difficult in at least the near term to get to where you can justify the kind of capital cost it takes to go to London. And even if we could take a high-speed rail from Houston to Lubbock, it would not compete as effectively against an airline because of the, the distance. The, the high-speed rail, it's a sweet spot of that couple hundred miles. We're 90 minutes or less between Houston and the Dallas-Fort Worth area. You can get up to about three hours. And after that, it starts. After that 90 minutes, hour to 90 minutes, two hours, it starts dropping off on ridership and exponentially drops off after three hours. So there's not a big market for a... Houston to Lubbock. You might get Dallas-Fort Worth to Lubbock or San Antonio, depending on the route you're in. El Paso has even more remote possibilities. And that's kind of the fallacy of the, the national high-speed rail plan. It'd be nice to be able to get on a train. Oh, we'd love to get on a train in Houston and go to Los Angeles. As a practical matter, people are going to go to city pairs. They're going to go Houston, Dallas-Fort Worth, Austin, San Antonio, Dallas-Houston, uh, maybe Houston, New Orleans, but maybe Oklahoma City. But even Oklahoma City is problematic because there's more people living in Houston than there's the entire state of Oklahoma or Louisiana. I mean, it's just... The market is not there right now. That's why it's not Austin and San Antonio are number five on the list instead of number one. It's it's, it's fast growing and as cool a place as this is. The market is not yet big enough to justify the first investment here. But once the first one's built and people get the market proven and then we can expand and add on to the system or someone can. And so I would assume that that Lubbock is going to be a long way down the line on that. Um, I I, I like Lubbock. (laughs) I'd love to be able to get there. But it's a hard to compete with uh, Southwest or United or somebody going. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Please join me in giving our panelists a hand.